Well, we're so glad that you're with us this morning and uh, glad you woke up when you woke up so you could get here on time. We actually had one guy in the early service say to me this. He said, I turned my clock back one hour instead of forward one hour. And I still made the 8.30 worship time. I thought that was pretty impressive. Uh, but we're glad that you're here. Listen, if you have your Bibles this morning, we want you to take them and turn to the book of Luke. And we're in the sweet spot of the Jesus series. How many of you have been with us through most of the series in Luke as we've walked through the life of Jesus. Would you raise your hand if you've been with us? Man, that's been great. We've had a great time as we've walked through the last year and a half or so. We are in a sweet spot right now as we move into the last week of the life of Jesus. In fact, that's why we call this series the Passion Series because this is the week where Christ demonstrates His love and demonstrates His passion for us. Let me just say that this week and the next three weeks are so very important. Uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons is because of the subjects that we'll be covering. We're talking today about the Garden of Gethsemane. Next week, we're talking about the trials of Jesus. The week after that, March 25th, I will build a cross on this stage on, uh, at 11 o'clock on that hour on March 25th. We have all of our services coming in here, our early service along with our late hour, and we want to really pack this place out. We want you to reach out to every person you can. That's the week before Easter, March 25th. And uh, I will be doing the cross message. The cross service takes place that morning. And uh, I'll be doing the full thing. I'll bring the cross in. It's a 20-foot long uh, pine tree, basically is what it is. Seven-foot side beam, 13-foot main beam. It'll go right into the stage here. And as I preach with that axe, we will be demonstrating what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 23. Then the following week, April 1st, is our Easter weekend. And you already know all the details about that. But you have these uh, invite cards, hopefully, that you have taken. And if not, we have some for you. Please take the opportunity to give this to your one in addition to two other people during the course of the week. And as you do that, as you invite them to either one of these services, either March 25th or April 1st, uh, the information is in this card right here. Love One uh, is what our focus is for the year. We've had over 1,200 individuals say we're going to reach out to someone else over the course of 2018. This is a prime time to invite people. Use this card. That this is an invite you can actually address to your one that you are reaching out to. This card says, love changes everything. And as you open that card even further, it demonstrates uh, when we are having our meeting times, what's going on on Easter weekend and the weekend before that. So all that information is right there. It makes it easy for you to reach out to someone else. Listen, if the news of Christ is good news, then we want everybody to know about it, right? We want them to know what is the reason for our hope. And those are the people that we're praying for, that we're interacting with, and we're investing in their life. Now it's time to invite them to come with you. If you have your Bibles, let's stand together and uh, turn to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. The title of the message today is The Defining Moment. You know, all of us have defining moments in our lives. A defining moment is what happens behind the scenes that allow what takes place in public to happen. A defining moment changes your next step and it changes your last step. Defining moments really create the rest of your life scenarios. When we have defining moments in our lives, everything moves from normal to very unusual and maybe even supernatural. The defining moment in the life of Jesus is taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane. A defining moment of decision. A defining moment of surrender. A defining moment of yielding to the will of God. In fact, if it were not for the defining moment in the Garden of Gethsemane that we're about to read about, the cross 
likely would never have taken place had Jesus not had that defining moment where he said what we all probably remember him saying, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. This is the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, beginning in verse 39. And he came out, as was his custom, proceeding to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Father, today we're asking you that this word, these words from this text that Luke recorded for our benefit, these words about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane will speak to us powerfully. We believe in the supernaturality of your word. We believe that this book is God-breed. We believe, Father, that you're going to speak to our hearts like no other book, like no other person could speak to us. So we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you'll do that work of speaking to us and illuminating to us the things we need to see today. We ask this in faith, and we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated if you would. I want to set the scene for just a few moments. Jesus has entered into the city of Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry earlier on in Luke. He's gone to the upper room after that, and he's had supper, the last supper with his disciples, similar to what we talked about a few moments ago. That last supper was a very intimate gathering just around those disciples. As you might remember, Judas was there, and Jesus washed the feet of all the disciples as they came into the room, according to John chapter 13, but also even the feet of Judas were washed by Jesus. We, we marveled at the fact that Jesus could know that he was going to be betrayed and still had the ability and the power and even the love to wash even Judas's feet. And there he broke the bread and there he shared the cup and reminded them of the Passover that they'd known so much about, but also the coming demonstration of the Passover. The Old Testament Passover observance featured a lamb, Jesus was to be the Lamb of God. And so he began to point them towards the cross. So immediately after that upper room experience, they come out to this place, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus came here to pray at other times. So this is not the first time the disciples have come. It's at the base of the Mount of Olives. In fact, if you're there, you can look up towards the eastern gate of the temple, sometimes called the Golden Gate of the temple, and also known as the Mercy Gate. Interestingly enough, this is where Jesus passed in the triumphal entry. This is the gate closest to the temple where the sacrifices were being made, hence the mercy gate, the place where people came to have their sins atoned for, paid for, the place of sacrifice. And so you can see that from where Jesus is in the Mount of Olives or in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is a garden experience where the moment of truth for Jesus is taking place. This is where he decides. This is where he prays. This is where he surrenders. This is where, when this point forward, he begins to march towards the cross. The trials take place after the betrayal. Then Jesus is scourged. Then Jesus goes to the cross. This is the moment. 
Now, I want you to see some things that are unfolding in this text that Luke gives us. Matthew and Mark write about this Gethsemane experience as well. Matthew is a little bit more detailed in the sense of how many times Jesus came to his disciples to find them asleep. Matthew emphasizes the kingship of Jesus. He's writing to the Jews. But Luke is writing to demonstrate Jesus is the son of man, not just the son of God, but the son of man, talking about his humility, talking about the fact that he's identifying with us fully as a human being, all God and all human at the same time. And as we see this text, we see so much of that coming through. Some things I want to point out today. First of all, the question. There's a question in Jesus' prayer, even though we don't see a question mark in the text itself. And the question is found in verse 42. We all know that by all the accounts that we read of the Gethsemane experience, Jesus is asking the question, is there any other way? Here's how he words that. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. So Jesus is in this moment. He's thinking about the future. He's asking the question, do I have to do this? Is this necessary? Everywhere we see a garden in the Bible, we see temptation in the garden. We see Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, first time in Matthew chapter 4, where the enemy comes and Satan literally tries to tempt him to exalt himself. Now Jesus, fully identifying with our humanity, is being tempted to save himself or preserve himself. In the first garden of Eden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God. I believe there is definitely a temptation in this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, to disobey God. But Jesus is not planning on disobeying God. He's simply asking the question, is there any other way? When we look at Jesus praying, we see his vulnerability in prayer, his honesty in prayer, his transparency in prayer. He's identifying again with our humanity completely. And the cup he speaks of here is the cup of the wrath of God. If you are willing, Father, remove this cup from me. We'll see some reason in just a few moments why that was such an important question for Jesus. But first, let's find out what the cup is. The cup is the wrath of God that's going to be poured out against all ungodliness and against all sin at some point. And Jesus is going to go to the cross and drink the cup of the wrath of God in our place. It's a huge moment of decision. You read about the cup of the wrath of God in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm chapter 11, verse 6, it says this, Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Again, speaking of the judgment of God against wickedness and against sin. Psalm 75, verse 7 says, But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For the cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foam. It is well mixed and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Again, the cup of justice and judgment against all wickedness. It's part of the piacular sacrifice. That's just another way of saying part of the appeasement sacrifice that Jesus is going to make when he sheds his blood to appease the wrath of God. And this cup of his wrath is referred to in Revelation chapter 14. Those who follow the beast and worship the beast will drink the cup of his wrath. Babylon will also drink the cup of his wrath. God will pour out his wrath upon all mankind, upon all sin, all wickedness at some point. And Jesus is asking the Father, is there any other way other than me drinking the cup of your wrath? 
That's the question. If you're willing, would you remove this cup for me? And of course, by now we know the answer to that question. Then there's the agony. This text, this insight from Luke shows us the agony Jesus is in. Luke, because he's a medical doctor, maybe gives us a few details that are very, very important about him being in agony. He's praying very fervently. The Bible later on says in the same text that he's sweating drops of blood. Not sweating like drops of blood, but literally sweating drops of blood. And nowhere in the Bible is Jesus portrayed in this kind of suffering before the scourging and before his death. He's in the garden. He falls to his, his knees. Matthew says he, he falls on his face. And he's calling out to God. Hebrews writing back about this thing says that he's crying out with loud tears and groanings. So Jesus is in this moment that we don't normally see him. His disciples are watching him and they don't normally see Jesus like this. This is the Jesus that walks on the water. This is the Jesus that raises the dead. This is the Jesus that heals the blind and the lame and, and, and multiplies the bread and the fishes so that people can eat. This is the Jesus that's transfigured on the mountaintop. And for the first time, these disciples see him in this kind of agony. And they've never seen him quite like this before. But even in this agony, he's going through this identification with us and our humanity. And yet at the same time, there's no human comparison to the kind of agony that he's going through here. Because Jesus' agony is not only a physical agony that he goes through, but also a spiritual agony as well. I want to kind of point out some of the agony, some of the levels of suffering that Jesus is going through at this point as you begin to read all these accounts and understand all that's going on with Jesus, with God the Father, with the sin of mankind. All of that's coming to this place in the garden. Notice some of them. First of all, there's physical agony. Jesus is anticipating going to the cross, but before the cross is the scourging and the beating. Literally, the scripture says, and it's prophesied even, that Jesus will be beaten to the place where he's not even recognizable as a human being. His beard will be plucked out. His back will be scourged. He'll be nothing but a mess of bloody flesh and still alive while he bears the cross on his way to Calvary. An incredible suffering that Jesus is about to undergo. So there's a physical agony that lies just ahead. And in the midst of all that physical agony that Jesus anticipates, there's this element of trust because he's having to trust the Father to let him die physically and yet rise him up three days later. There's a trust that says, I'm willing to let go of this physical body that I've been living in for 33 years and I, I've trusted every day that I get up and my heart is beating and my blood is pumping through and I can see and hear and lift and now I'm trusting you to let that die and rise up again in three days. There's a trust factor involved with the physical agony that he's going through as well. Then there is a moral agony taking place in Jesus' life. Simply put, this is the one who knows no sin, and he is about to become sin on our behalf. Paul, writing back about the cross in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, talks about the fact that he that knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become in him the righteousness of God. So here is Jesus, who is fully human, fully God, but absolutely holy. He has never sinned. He's never given in to temptation. He has an immaculate nature. 
in that it's never given in in any way to any temptation at all. And here he is in all of his holiness and all of his purity about to take on the sinfulness and the weight of the sin of all mankind. All my wickedness, all your wickedness, all our evil, all our sin, all compiled together, placed on Jesus. There's a spiritual, moral agony that Jesus is anticipating in this garden. There's a judicial agony. We've already talked about the cup of wrath. God is going to pour out the cup of wrath on his own son. The cup of wrath that should be poured out upon us and upon all of mankind. Jesus is going to drink. Jesus is going to allow that to be poured out on him. So there is a judicial agony. There's a relational agony. We know that the Bible says that when Jesus was on the cross, he said, why hast thou forsaken me, Father? So for that moment, the Father looks away while Jesus becomes sin on our behalf. There is that relational agony of never having in any way disappointing the Father, being forsaken by the Father, being in tune always with the Father. For that moment, he becomes sin, and the relational agony of that is about to happen. Then there is the demonic agony of temptation and torment. Well, the scripture doesn't tell us that Satan is there in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's no doubt in my mind that he's always lurking near, either working through Judas or the soldiers that come or attempting to get Jesus not to go to the cross. If Satan can somehow tempt Jesus to forego the cross, then Satan has kept the entirety of mankind in darkness and sin and separation. So there is the agony of spiritual warfare. All of this is happening. No wonder Jesus is kneeling or laying prostrate in, the gar prostrate in the garden. No wondering he's crying out to the Father with loud, loud groanings and tears. No wonder he's sweating drops of blood because he's in agony. Doctors tell us that there is a condition, a human condition called hematidrosis. When one is violently aggravated by grief, blood is pressured to penetrate the vessel and it exudes through the sweat glands. Literally, doctors know today that Jesus could literally have been sweating drops of blood and the scripture lends itself to that. I think Luke as a doctor was aware and was knowledgeable about, about the fact that extreme stress can produce that in a human being. He recognized that for what was going on. So Jesus was in this agony, sweating drops of blood, probably screaming in revulsion as, as holiness takes upon himself the sinfulness of mankind, the agony. Just a moment for just a few seconds. I want to step out of that garden because Jesus has asked a question. We're going to come around to the answer in just a moment. We're looking at the agony of Jesus. We're looking at his example as well. And I want us to step out of that garden and look back at the example for just a few moments because I want you to see what Jesus intended the disciples to see. The Bible says that they came into that garden earlier. Jesus removed about a stone's throw away from the bulk of those disciples. Matthew tells us and Mark tells us that the three were closest to him. James, John, and Peter were closer to him. The other eight were a little further away. But they were watching. They saw his example even in this agony. And I want us to step out for the moment and look in from that perspective as a disciple of Jesus. I think it's intriguing that while Jesus was at the most agonizing moment of his life, he still was being an incredible example for us. So that when we go through agony and 
heartbreak and difficulty and all the pain that we may go through at some point in life or have gone through in life, we have an example. When we have Gethsemane moments, that will not be in any way parallel to Jesus' Gethsemane moment, not, not anywhere nearly as uh, impactful as this Gethsemane moment, but we have our moments where we're concerned about what God is doing or what God is not doing, concerned about life or agony or pain or suffering or whatever it may be, those moments when we doubt, when we wonder what is going on and Jesus leads us well. Let me ask you to take some lessons out of this moment. The first lesson is prayer overcomes temptation. Jesus literally says to the disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he walked right into this moment in Gethsemane. And each time, Matthew says, as he comes back out to see his disciples, they're asleep. They're not, they're not staying in prayer. And he reproves them for that. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation for the spirit is willing. But you know this line, that the flesh is weak. How often have we said that in our own lives? The Spirit is willing. I want to follow Jesus. I want to do what God tells me to do. I want to be obedient to Jesus. But, man, I'm weak. My flesh is weak. My flesh is weary. My flesh is discouraged. I am so tired. I'm so worn out. I'm so disheartened. I don't know when God's going to come through. I don't know when the joy of all this difficult obedience is going to happen. I am worn out. Prayer overcomes the temptation to disobey God. It overcomes the temptation that the enemy certainly throws our way. Earlier in Luke, Jesus had said this to his disciples. Luke 18, verse 1. He says, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. What an example. He goes on into an incredible story about why we need to persevere and, and the fact that perseverance brings about victory. Let me say something to you today. If Jesus was willing to walk through this Gethsemane moment for you, you should walk through those moments as well by prayer for him, to follow him, to say yes to him, to keep saying yes to him even when it's difficult. Prayer overcomes temptations. There are times in my life when I don't want to follow the Lord. I know that's hard for you to believe that your preacher doesn't want to follow the Lord sometimes. It shouldn't surprise any of us because all of us struggle with that. And I have to take a step back and I have to say, man, I've got to pray I've got to remember why I'm on planet Earth. I've got to remember who's my Savior, who's my Lord, who knows best, who's wisest, who has all of the understanding of the end of my days as well as the next step of my days. I have to step back and remember that. Otherwise, I'll be tempted to do whatever I want to do, whatever is most comfortable, whatever is easiest for me to do. Pray that you may not enter into temptation to disobey God. And in Jesus' agony, he demonstrates the importance of that. If Jesus needed to pray, you need to pray. If Jesus prayed in order to overcome the temptation and the agony and the difficulty that lay ahead, you and I need to pray. We need to have that kind of prayer life. Secondly, pray your heart but his will. When Jesus prayed, he said, Father, if there's any way, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But he went on and said, yet not my will, but your will be done. Pray your heart, but his will. Start with your heart, end with his will. Be honest and vulnerable and open. And at the same time, leave what you ask loosely in your hands. One commentator said, he doesn't desire to disobey his father, but he wishes his will were different. I can understand that. 
But in the end, he yields. Have you ever been there before where you wish God's will was different? Where you wish that outcome was not what you're experiencing? Where you wish God had done this instead of that? Where you wish this person had been moved to do that instead of what they actually did? When you wished you were healthy instead of not healthy? You wish you were uh, provided for in this way instead of that way? And in all that, you say, God, can't you make this any different? Won't you make this any different? But the reality is, Jesus shows us the way to pray. Lord, this is my heart, but what I really want is your will, and I'll be happy with your will. That's where Jesus is. Pray your heart, but his will and then the last principle or example is prayer brings us to surrender. You see, it's in prayer that God prepares us to say yes to him. If you're not willing to pray, you're probably not willing to say yes to him. If you don't say yes to prayer, you're not going to say yes to obedience. You're not going to say yes the next day or the next day if you're not going to say yes to prayer. How many times have you been prompted to pray about something and you said, I'll do it later, and you don't, and then you give in to temptation in some way? Say yes to prayer, because prayer brings us to surrender. Maybe the most important part of prayer is not us telling God what we want, but God showing us what he wants, and us saying, then that's okay with me. Do you notice what happens with Jesus when he asks this question? Obviously, the answer is, you're going to go to the cross. There's no argument. There's no condemnation of the Father for being somehow lacking in mercy. There is no doubt that the Father will raise him from the dead. There's no attitude. There's no rejection. There is no talking back. Jesus leads the way well. I need to be in prayer like that. You need to be in prayer like that. And at the end of it, we see he was willing. May that be said of all of us. You are willing. I am willing to do what God says. Even though I pray my heart, even though I have a wish or a desire, I am surrendered to him. Prayer brings us to that place. And then we come to the moment. This is the key moment. This is the momentous time in history right here where Jesus has prayed the prayer, if you're willing to remove this cup from me, yet he says in verse 46, not my will but yours be done. In Matthew's account, Verse 46, immediately after he prays this, he gets up, he wakes his disciples up, and he says, it's time for us to be going. He's betrayed in the garden, he's taken to the trials, he's scourged, he's crucified, he's buried. It's time to go. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to drink the cup of wrath. I'm going to take the scourging and suffering. I'm going to receive the accumulated sins of the history of all mankind on my shoulders. Let's go. He's ready. The moment. This is such a key moment. It's important to pause and think about what he has said here and to think about what the Father has said. By the Father's unwillingness to provide a different plan, by Jesus surrendered to the Father's plan, we learn so much. Because the question is, Father, is there any way are you willing to remove this cup, but not my will, but yours be done? And this is where Jesus really does, he really does answer once for all the question of, is there any other way for salvation? Is there any other act of atonement that anyone could make that would allow people to be forgiven? Is there anyone else who can do this? And the answer to all those questions are no. There's no other way. 
There's no other one. There's no other, other method for forgiveness of sin. This is the one and only way that God has appointed for all of mankind to come and have their sins forgiven by Jesus going and being the sacrifice for us and dying on that cross. There is no other way. And so since there is no other way, Jesus said, I will do this. See his willingness. Feel his passion and his love right now for what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane all those years ago. His passion and love demonstrated by his willingness to lay down his life for you and for me. Greater love, Jesus said, there's no man than this that he laid down his life for his friends. Now, I don't know how you're feeling about yourself today, but let me ask you this question. If you knew that Jesus Christ was going to go through this agony, all that we talked about, going to be scourged, going to die on a cross, going to rise again the third day in your place, would that help you feel loved? And if you knew that he did that because he loved you, would you feel valued? Would you have an appreciation for that? Would you think differently about your purpose in life? Would you think differently about what God has for you? Even when you go through suffering and hardship and difficulty and times of confusion and you don't know what God is up to, but, but would, you, would you try to make sense of it in light of the fact that everything passes through his love, everything passes through the fact that he values you, everything passes through the fact that he was going to give his all, his all for you. Let me just say it. You are loved. You are valued. No one could demonstrate it like this. As a matter of fact, it might be a good thing for us to say today, I am loved. Would you say that? I am valued. Because of what Christ did on the cross, we can say that without any doubt. Other human beings may or may not be able to love us. They may or may not be able to value us. Christ does. See his willingness, see his passion, see his love to lay his life down for you. The fact that Jesus Christ laid his life down for us on the cross and the fact that Jesus Christ got the answer back that there is no other way explodes the notion of anyone else satisfying the wrath of God. No one else can satisfy the wrath of God. No one else can appease God Almighty's wrath for us. It also demolishes the fact that we can ourselves atone for our sin, that we can find a religious way or a good works way or anything else. Jesus has already asked the question, is there any other way? And the Father says, no other way, only through my Son. And we need to see that. One of the most uh, riveting statements I read this past week was this statement written by an, an author named Godet. He says, the Lamb of God must be distinguished from typical victims by his free acceptance of death as a punishment for sin. And hence, they're required to be in his life a decisive moment, speaking about Jesus, a decisive moment when in the fullness of consciousness and liberty, he should accept the punishment which he was about to undergo. So Jesus did not enter into this under force, he willingly came to the garden, willingly was betrayed, willingly was tried, willingly was scourged, willingly laid down his life on the cross. He himself said, I lay my life down and I lay it down so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. And he did that because it was the only way. He says, let us be going to the disciples. It's time. And he did. Some years ago, I, I read the story 
of a, of a flight crash that took place in 1987. It was Northwest Flight 225 flying out of Detroit. It crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport, killed 155 people, killed all but one. The only survivor was a four-year-old girl named Cecilia from Tempe, Arizona. The news accounts say that when the rescuers came on the scene and they found her, they did not believe she had been on the plane because the plane had landed on a highway and several of the cars had been demolished that the plane had hit. They thought and suspected that she came from one of the cars and somehow survived that way because there were no other survivors on the airplane. But as they checked the plane manifest, the records, they found her name there. And they discovered what happened. Cecilia survived because even as the plane was falling, her mother, whose name was Paula, unbuckled her seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms and body around Cecilia and would not let go. So they fell from the sky and her own mother's body protected her from death. If you know mothers, that doesn't surprise you, does it? So the plane fell, crashed, burned. And Cecilia was saved because of the sacrifice of her mom. Wow, that's powerful. You know, the truth is, it's easy to make that connection, isn't it? Humanity has crashed and burned. Sin will take all of us, except for the sacrifice of one. God sent his son to die on the cross to be in our place, and he wraps himself around us to save us if we'll have him. He's the only way. He's the only one. And he would do that if we were the only one that needed saving. He does that for us all. You see, this defining moment for Jesus was that he would go on and make the sacrifice in order to save us. Our defining moment, our defining moment takes place when we accept what he did for us. If our defining moment means that from that moment on, every next step is different and every last step is different and everything about our life changes, that is the defining moment. Because we go through life in so many different directions sometimes. But when you have a defining moment, when you come to place of knowing that Jesus Christ died for you, loves you, values you, pays for your sin and offers you eternal life, and you make that decision, that decisive moment changes your life from that day forward. Hundreds and thousands and millions of people testify that. That's my testimony. That's my story. That's yours for many of you today. Have you had that defining moment? Have you come to respond to that incredible love? Statement of value. Statement of sacrifice on your behalf. I'm going to have to you bow for a moment. I want you to think about this. Today, your defining moment can happen right now if it's not already. It may be that in this room today, there are people who realize they've already had the defining moment. They've already put their faith and trust in Christ, and they know beyond doubt that He is their sacrificial lamb. He's the one that died for them, and they're trusting what Jesus has done on the cross. And if you know that beyond doubt, I'm going to ask that you indicate that by just simply lifting your hand. I know that I've put my faith and trust in Christ. I've had that defining moment. Would you raise your hand wherever you are? Just raise it up high. All right. There are many of us in this room. Most of us in this room have raised our hand. That's great. Put your hand down. How many of you couldn't say that? How many of you are at the place where you say, I'm not sure I've had that defining moment. I don't know. And let me just tell you, today can be that day, that defining moment. Jesus has done everything possible, and all you must do is respond to his love. How have you responded 
But if you've not responded by accepting him by faith, then why would you not do that now? You know you're loved. You know you're valued. You know it's the only way. Come to him today. I'm going to ask our counselors to come to the front as we close our service today. They'll be available to you. There are three ways that you can respond to what Christ has done for you today. Three ways that I want you to consider responding because today would not be a good day to walk away. In fact, no day is a good day to walk away from the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for you. So number one, in just a moment, I'll, I'll, I'll have a stand. And when I have a stand, I'll lead us in a closing word of prayer. And as we close in prayer, at the conclusion of that, our service will be over, but there will be those standing at the front who are ready to counsel with you, to pray with you. And uh, I want to encourage you that you can take this moment today, just have a conversation with one of them, and they're ready to help you know what you may not know, what questions you may need answered, what decisions you need to make. They're here for you today. That's number one. Number two, when I pray, I invite you to the guest reception room. That's a place where we talk about salvation as well. And we can take some time to do that. Number three, there's a way for you to respond by text if you want to respond by text. There's a way for you to get on the phone and simply type a series of numbers. We'll have that on the screen. And just say, I want to talk. T-A-L-K. Just write that in the timeline or in the information line. Talk, and, and we will respond to you today because we want to talk about something so important as this defining moment in your life. Would you stand with me as we prepare to pray? You'll see the number on the screen. You'll see the counselors that are at the front. You're invited also to come to the guest reception room. We want to talk about something this important. Please talk with us. Father, in Jesus' name today, I thank you so much for the very clear and undebatable sacrifice and love of Jesus. Father, I pray today that not one of us will walk away without having responded in faith. And Father, I pray above that, that all of us would be motivated and inspired to go tell everyone else about what you've done for us, Lord, and how you have paid the ultimate sacrifice, how you've made it possible for us to have eternal life and to live this life that you've called us to. Thank you, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.